Broadcasting live from the USCSS Nostromatu. This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Seamus Connolly. I'm Dr. Acula Garrett-Strother. <laughs> Count Strother himself. Ooh, ah, ah, ah. This is also, I think, the second week in a row I've opened with a dumb, I'm Dr. Whoever. <laughs> oh, well, it, 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 it's there for a reason. It's for you. I'm still, I'm still shaky on my own podcast nickname. I'll get there one day. I've got the outro, though. I've got the catchphrase. As long as we can slap something for each of us on a t-shirt, <laughs> yeah, that's all yes. that really matters. Oh, no, we're looking at you, T-Public. We know you do weird podcast stuff. But today we are going to be talking about the new vampire romp, Last Voyage of Demeter. We're the only two people, actually, that have seen this movie, I think. <laughs> I think so. First, we are going to get into one little piece of news, and there's really not much to it. Surprise, surprise, we've got a strike update, and... Again, surprise, surprise, not much movement has occurred. Mm. The SAG-AFTRA strike, there's no news on that front. Picketing is still going strong. But the AMPTP has returned to the negotiating table with the WGA. And on August 18th, studio heads all got together and convened to talk strategy about the ongoing strike. Presumably both WGA and SAG-AFTRA. Being back at the negotiating table is good. It's too bad that we couldn't follow up last week's mm. WGA submitted their counteroffer with, yay, they, you know, it happened, everything went through. But as long as the writers can get what they're asking for, that's really what is important here. So we'll be back soon with more strike stuff, I'm sure. Yeah, hopefully a little more actual update. But, you know, movement is movement, and, and it's good, it's good to see. But without further ado, shall we take a good voyage to the movies, Seamus? <laughs> you, you were saving that, you, you ass. Let's do it. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about The Last Voyage of Demeter, which many of you may know colloquially as Dracula on a Boat. And Dracula on a boat, it was, Garrett, and I kind of um, loved it. Is that crazy to say? I think we both kind of agree that it was, like you were saying, we are like the only two people in the world to have seen this movie, but I feel like it should be catching fire right now. It's kind of a great late summer random horror thriller that I only really started seeing ads for it like maybe a week or two before it came out, and even then... All of the people that I have been talking to about it in the last day since we've seen it have just been like, have it doesn't even sound familiar to me. Like that don't don't know that one. But I really hope that more people go and see it soon because I I very much enjoyed myself. What about you? Oh, certainly me too. I've been excited about this one since it was announced, just because I have been a fan of Andre Overdahl since high school. I really like his film Troll Hunter, which we may come back to later on the show. <laughs> and when I kept hearing more information about it, you know, who was in it, Liam Cunningham, Corey Hawkins, I think we have to officially graduate to not calling him the Baba Yaga guy because David Dasmalchian is too good in too many things for us mm. to just keep calling him that to not say his actual name. David Dastmalchian, he 
kills it. Like, I always think that he's in too little of what he's in, but he's like a straight-up big main character in Last Voyage here. And despite this movie being about, like, uh, an Eastern European boogeyman-style monster that he is up against, he is absolutely no longer the Baba Yaga guy. I also enjoyed the rest of the cast, who were mostly new to me, though I have learned that Stefan Kapikik, Kapichik, something, the guy who plays Olgarin is also Colossus from the Deadpool movies, so... Is that right? Wait, like, the, the first mate guy? Like, the guy who knows what's going on? Yes, that guy. That guy, he was so good. That is Colossus. That's so funny. He's great in those movies, too. I, I actually very much enjoy him in those. Even the interchangeable Marion Pippin guy... <laughs> like I thought he was I really the whole the whole crew here worked for the me. whole crew yeah definitely this movie was definitely better than I was expecting it to be I said I was excited for it but it was definitely in more of a like dumb campy B movie way mm-hmm. and well this is definitely a dumb campy B movie and I'm not trying to hold it to really standards higher than that nor do I think it asks to be held to standards higher than that but the lighting the way it shot the straight up gore in this oh, movie dude i was really surprised at how far this movie was willing to go at how unsettling it was in a lot of different ways that i, I think we'll have to wait mm-hmm. for spoilers to get a little bit more into the specifics of it but i was thrilled we've been doing the meg movies lately and we've been talking about you know oh you know, these giant budget monster movies that are just dumb fun. And this is how you do a B-movie monster movie that is actually atmospheric and creepy and scary. It's something that I don't think we get as often as we should. And we've been also talking a lot about Kong Skull Island lately (laughs) uh, for similar reasons. And then, you know, we've got... Corey Hawkins from Kong Skull Island, he's here, he's playing the most educated guy in the movie yet again. And, As always. Mm-hmm. And he is American, by the way, he is not British, even well, though he is quite good at it in this movie. He did do He did do a good British. I won't complain about that. He was killing it. And I, do, I mean, this movie's a lot darker and a lot scarier than something like Kong Skull Island, but... I do think it's closer in actual quality to something like that. I definitely agree. I I feel like the the last couple weeks here, we've been really exploring movies that we have lower expectations of, but in in things like The Meg and Meg 2, The Trench, and The Last Voyage of Demeter, I feel like me and you keep coming back to the idea of, like, they're very clearly paying homage to a ton of other pieces of media before it, even not even thinking about The Last Voyage of Demeter being based on the original Bram Stoker's Dracula, but the film influences of of everything and it not feeling hacky or tired, but like actually like there's some respect being paid to these other things that are clearly being drawn from to create something like the atmosphere and it's horror it's the last voyage of demeter is a horror movie and i feel like i was seeing a ton of alien the thing the things that are gonna definitely come up a lot more as we get farther into it but 
I've been really enjoying this new brand of like modern monster movie culture where it's just not necessarily shying away that much from taking from the things that are obviously huge influences on it, but like really plussing them up in a way that feels earned. And it's finding a fresh new way to tell those stories. Mm -hmm. And as much as I love the original Dracula novel and also kind of feel like it hasn't been from the adaptations that I've seen properly adapted yet as much. I mean, I love Bela Lugosi. He's great, but I think there are elements that are not fully realized in, in those kinds of adaptations. And I would love to see a full adaptation of Dracula done really well, but finding a new twist to make it more accessible to contemporary audiences and also just it would be one thing if they made a Dracula slasher movie and just left it at that, but they didn't. They went, okay, how do we really find a reason to make it a Dracula slasher movie? They went all the way back to the source material and said, well, here's an excerpt that we can build out and and expand and find the edges of and then play in our own little sandbox to make it a Dracula slasher movie, but also make it our own thing. I kept thinking a lot about also, not that they are in any way similar, the Invisible Man, the Elizabeth Moss Invisible mm. Man adaptation. And I think that right now, those are the sweet spots for adapting these classic universal monsters is we all are so familiar through cultural osmosis, if not directly engaging with previous interpretations of the characters, what these universal monsters are all about. So using that to the filmmaker's advantage and playing with those expectations and crafting an entirely different angle to approach them from and imbuing a different genre onto them because The Invisible Man is obviously more of a paranoia thriller than... Oh yeah, that's exactly the words I would use. <laughs> a straight horror film, although it certainly is a horror film. And similarly here... It's not so much a fantasy horror, although it's clearly there. It's mm. taking that and approaching it from the angle of a slasher. And I hope that, despite the fact that, well, the pandemic really, really kneecapped Invisible Man, despite its excellent critical reception. And this is not being super well received by audiences or critics, but you and I are crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, it blows my mind to see those scores, dude. I really did not expect people to not like it that much. I can't, I don't understand why. And I'm glad that you and I, I think, walk a very fine line. Not that we, we don't meta-podcast too much in this way, but <laughs> we are not dumb fanboys. We're like, the critics, they don't understand what the, what the mass is like, and da 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 but we are also happy to disagree with critics. We certainly disagreed with critics about the Meg 2 last week. Yeah, oh yeah. Sometimes people are judging films on things that are sometimes not even a criteria to judge a specific film on. I don't know. This is Last Voyage of Demeter isn't the best movie I've ever seen. Is it even the best horror movie I've ever seen? Really not at all, but it was still, like I said, like a late summer sleeper. I, I think that I've, if we can spread the word, we gotta. We really should, because I would like to go see this again. I, I'm going to see it when it comes back on streaming, for sure. I completely agree, and I, this is one of those where I wonder, okay, if they had waited till Halloween, would it maybe be doing a little bit better? If they had 
marketed it slightly differently if they i mean i think last voyage of meter is a fantastic name and it's integrated very well also into not only the themes of the film but also like literally just the way the film is shot it plays a lot mm. with the title you know the meme is dracula on a boat and if it were maybe named something a little bit more accessible that could also be helping it as well but i'm not going to blame the movie for that because a good movie is a good movie and financial nor critical success are the ultimate measure of that it's how you feel while you're watching it and the experience that the filmmaker takes you on and i for one cannot recommend last voyage of demeter enough it is not for the faint of heart but if you like slasher movies if you like dracula i'm all for it I second that wholeheartedly. I, I was doing a little uh, self Dracula self-reflection as we were prepping this episode, and I realized that this is maybe the first actual full Dracula thing I've ever seen somehow, and I, you know, obviously I know so much about Dracula. Like you were saying, it's just like in the zeitgeist for the last hundred years, like people just, people know. This being my, somehow my first Dracula, full Dracula experience, and how ingrained in the source lore of the original Bram Stoker novel, I, that's got me really excited to go back and really dig into the century-long legacy of this character that I somehow have avoided up to this point. Well, I, I very much encourage you to, and with October right around the corner, I think that you and I will be definitely embarking on a few vampiric odysseys yeah dracula i think should be among them but let's go ahead and talk spoilers on last voyage of demeter because there is a lot to talk about yeah we were kind of talking about the slow pacing and how how they really really take their time in in the slasher zone out there but the slow burn of getting bit by bit glances at Dracula until we see the full creature design of how he looks and the the Nosferatu skinny Smeagol Gollum creature that is just ripping people's throats apart smashing multiple faces in this movie it, it's incredible I loved how he looked yeah and I, I almost felt like he evolved the way he looked throughout the film a little bit. Like, oh yeah. Clearly, the implication is that when he first comes out of the crate, it's not even an implication. It's just a fact that is told to us through through the storytelling. <laughs> he is weak when he first comes mm -hmm. out, and as he feeds, he becomes stronger and more formidable. And I really liked the balance that they found between, like, like you said, he's this Nosferatu monster. But he's not just Nosferatu. He has bat wings, which I don't, you know, Nosferatu doesn't traditionally mm -hmm. have. And they found a lot of interesting ways to incorporate elements of vampire folklore with a, a slightly more realistic approach to what this monster would be like. And he is so unnerving to look at. You know, you and I were both expecting, I think, him to be shown a little bit less than he was mm -hmm. but the way that they portray him especially early on where he's just this golem-esque slouching crawling shivering gray husk of a thing and that is still absolutely terrifying 
Yeah, there's that first time we kind of get a better look at him, and he's, like, slithered up under the stairs on the deck of the Demeter, and it is it is really upsetting to see him just fully spring and lunge at was that the was that the racist fellow who really wants his bonus that he the racist fellow who also is making eyes at our stowaway quote unquote yeah. friend who we didn't mention up top pre spoilers but Dracula brought a snack along. Yeah, truly. Um, uh, I also I don't want to even know how late 1800s blood transfusions worked, but I'm pretty sure that's just not how it goes down. Maybe I'm a fool, but I'm pretty sure that's not how it goes down. I don't know either. It was pretty... She's in a box of dirt, just like Dracula, and putting the needle straight into her arm without cleaning (laughs) anything? No no skin cleaning? No nothing? Like, I know it's... 1870 and you don't know about germ theory yet but my goodness but like he's like washing his hands it's like they have a sink for washing hands he's a doctor for christ's sake he knows <laughs> yeah um, uh, the blood types never heard of them we're going we're going straight in i thought that was a really smart element that i don't think either of us actually saw coming that there was another person on the ship that wasn't dracula they really do play with the Dracula hypno slave servant to the count thing with a few different characters, but I thought she was going to turn a little earlier, if I'm being yeah, honest. I'm glad she didn't because she turned out to be a very fun part of the, you know, the survival crew out there, but oh, she gets lit up. They fully burst into flames in sunlight. And I haven't se- I feel like I haven't really seen that in a vampire thing in a long time of just like true absolute spontaneous combustion in the sunlight it it was it was that was tough to see it's very gnarly and they do not shy away from it and i think that's one of the moments where it feels the most like the thing is when they have people just straight up screaming shrieking yeah that is absolutely very much true um including a small boy boy. might i say i want to just throw that out there is that they do something that I haven't seen in a horror movie in a long time, which is straight up kill the kid, which is insane that they do it like three different kind of ways in that movie. Yeah, and not only do they kill him, but he becomes like this sickening zombie that is a vestige of evil. And that's very upsetting because his father figure, Liam Cunningham, from Game of Thrones, who mm. I love to see doing stuff. I, I miss seeing him and stuff. As the ship's captain is so distraught over the death of this boy, Toby. And that little actor, he does a great job. Woody Norman. He was also in Come On, Come On with Joaquin Phoenix, which is a movie oh. I heard really good things about and didn't see. Well, yeah, he was, a, he was a great. I usually, again, I'm not a huge fan of... You know, the kid characters in horror movies, sometimes they really get in the f- way of the flow of the horror. But this kid was right on, and it was truly unexpected that he was going to get got by Dracula himself before they stop his heart, and he turns into a vampire and then bursts into flames. <laughs> it is, And then thrown into the ocean. Well, he's still maybe kind of alive a little bit. And I really thought, you and I discussed this after the film, that if anybody was getting out of this scenario, it would be the kid. That they put the kid on a raft or a yeah, lifeboat. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, while they fight off Dracula. And that everybody... kid grows up to be a vampire hunter in like twenty years or whatever. Exactly. Everyone thinks he's crazy, but he's he knows. What we do get, I don't want to jump all the way to the ending, but I think one of the great pleasures and great surprises of this film was that there was a denouement. Because frankly, I didn't think Corey Hawkins was going to make it out of this movie, and after watching watching his friend Anna burst into flame in the middle of the ocean (laughs) he makes it to shore and becomes a kind of backdoor van helsing who is chasing down dracula in what is almost a setup for a sequel but i think is really just a very thrilling way of playing with what we already know about the backstory of dracula and the genre as a whole I mean, would I necessarily be upset if they announced a sequel? The Last Survivor of Demeter or some some such play on That'd that. But I think it is just like a really fun, whimsical way to end this horror movie. It was like, is, is he hunting Dracula or is Dracula hunting him, Garrett? They're both kind of like on each other's trail out there in London and... It's not so much a happy ending, like, oh, yeah, Corey Hawkins got out of it alive and he gets to live the rest of his life, you know, Dracula-free. It's it's just a really compelling way to end a movie with me wanting more. And again, that might just be because Corey Hawkins really kills it in this movie. Like, he's very, very good. But I wouldn't necessarily be upset with another one. I love also, because it would feel really lame if it was just like, okay, time for the sequel, and it would feel kind of disrespectful to everything that happened over the course of the rest of the movie. (laughs) And I like that it's so rooted in to honor those who have died, I will devote the rest of my days to hunting him down and killing him. Uh, I was hoping that we would get to see Dracula in human form, because especially earlier in the film, she mentions that... I mean, he's kind of in human form. He's still pretty nasty looking, I guess, in the end there, but... He looks more like Nosferatu, honestly, when he's in, like, his quote-unquote human form. Oh, yeah, sure, in his big black jacket and stuff. Mm-hmm. It worked. It felt grounded enough, and... I-, I almost took that as, like, he is in his human form, but Corey Hawkins knows who Dracula... Like, he can see through the lies of Dracula. To, he can sniff out, you know, the monster, because he got cut on the neck for whatever... That's, that seemed like they had more of a connection because of that for some reason to me at the yeah. end there. He, like, gives him a little wisp on the scar on his neck. Uh, subjective storytelling. I like it, Shane. It's interesting <laughs> interpretation. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm, I want more, but I also maybe just want to rewatch this movie. You and I, I think we're both, like, honestly, if there had been a 10 o'clock showing, we very likely <laughs> would have gone, I think. Double up on Demeter? Uh, It's really good. I'm going to seriously, I'm still going to be recommending this to everyone, even though they're just going to be like, I, that's not a real movie. I've never, that's not real. I don't know. I also want to shout out Dracula's wolf cane because Dracula, both in the book and in Nosferatu is also a werewolf. He can also turn into a beast. Is that true? Yeah. What? That's insane. <laughs> he should have you should have done that maybe in this movie. That's awesome. I again, I I'm very green in my Dracula phase right now, but that is seriously kind of 
amazing. There, see, Garrett, there's more to do in another movie. Damn it. Well, but that's the thing. Also, I feel like it was an. In- they found a way to give him all of the Dracula transforming things without actually explicitly doing it. That is true. Because bat-, bat wings, he grows them, like you know, mm-hmm. turning into whatever shape shifting. And even something like it's. It's unclear whether this is just, you know, atmospheric weather happening or if he has some control over it. But as we enter the third act and all of the steam yeah, the and fog. mist rises and that Dracula can turn into smoke as well, traditionally. I didn't know that either. This man has so many powers. No wonder all these guys more or less got killed. But the crucifix doesn't do very good. Yeah, I was I was a little sad about. I, I'm always interested in how vampire stuff is gonna do the crucifix thing, and oftentimes they just throw it on the guy. You just been reading legends. That doesn't work or whatever. And they pretty much just did the exact same thing here with a cute little joke about tying up Liam Cunningham in like a Jesus pose on the wheel of the Demeter, which is also a reference to. They ex- explicitly in the novel mention it's a subversion, but the captain of the Demeter in the book lashes himself to the wheel to try to control the ship, and he also has a crucifix in his hand to ward off oh. Dracula. Damn. But he dies still. Uh, well, so. he dies a pretty... He's he, he has a bad last voyage, that captain. He he is... I can't believe it's my last voyage before <laughs> retirement, guys. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm gonna pass it on to you, David Dastmalchian, my surrogate son, even though maybe the little kid is his grandson. He, like, mentions that he has a daughter before then later being like, I've got nothing to live for anymore, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, that was really the one element of the screenplay where I was like... Well, I guess that just didn't come back, right? Yeah, unless we maybe just misheard and he's he has the grandson because his daughter is maybe dead and he's, you know, the, the actual parental figure for this boy. And if I'm being honest, it doesn't really matter, but it was I, I, just a little confusing. It doesn't really matter, but we clocked it and we were expecting a little bit of something out of it. So it matters just a little bit because we noticed it. Interestingly... I think the movie that this is most similar to tonally is Overlord. Interesting. Overlord. Don't you think that there's a lot of overlordiness to this movie? Like it's a it's a kind of big budget but not super big budget. Recognizable but not too recognizable in the cast. Mhm. And it's it's a gore fest that has a little bit of an action twinge to it. And I don't know. Kind think... of semi pseudo historical. I know it's based on dra- it's like fiction, but it's also like a period piece setting. No, I, I get. I'm picking up what you're putting down. That makes sense to me. And it's the same kind of like campy B movie tone. Overlord is maybe more explicitly a campy B movie, but I think like it balances the camp against the the gore and yeah the hyper violence. Yeah. Similarly. Oh man, yeah they really. They really, they're slashing throats, they're smashing face, human faces into nothing. Huge bites out of everyone's neck, like classic Dracula style. I very, I, I love that. I'm a little bit bummed that the cook, we didn't get to see him go out a little bit harder. Yes, I wish Joseph the cook, the high, the super religious cook who won't feed anybody who takes God's name in vain. 
I wanted to see him go out a little more. He he goes into the fog that we see his bloody rowboat get swished back to the ship, and he was like my favorite character. And I knew he wasn't making it out no matter what. But we also kept going like, all right, Cook's gone. Cook's dead. And then Cook just kept surviving until he proved himself a coward. His character was tarnished. He's also the first person that reveals that Dracula can fly because Dracula has to get over to the rowboat. Yes, he's like, I'm off the ship, totally free and clear, out of here, Jesus has my back, Jesus take the oar, and then, bam, (laughs) snatched. So there is is that element, you know. That uh, is true, he's part of a good reveal, but... We were both surprised at the order in which the crew members died, and I think that that is intentional to kind of keep us on our toes and subvert things a little bit and be like, oh, I didn't think, you know, they make us really hate that racist guy and then he's the first guy that goes out. And to be fair, he's one of the hardest guys that goes out. Like, it's a really, he is still alive as Dracula is feeding on him and and hurting yeah, he, him. he gets like slashed in the legs and then pounced on at like like truly like a like a nature film watching a lion rip somebody apart he's like looking into the camera as we close up on his open neck it is he they really get this guy but uh, the Marion Pippin guy I mentioned earlier makes it all the way he's like the fifth to last guy yeah <laughs> yeah he and uh Volchek is David Dastmalchen's name in this. They say Volchek a lot. They do. They're like in the they're in the crow's nest together with rifles. Like, all right, we're tied off. We're gonna make it out of here. Like, it's crazy that they make that guy almost seem more important than he is because we know he's vampire fodder the whole time. But he, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a surprising length in which he survives. Also, I wanted to shout out. I didn't mention this up top in pre-spoilers just because i didn't know but javier Baudet, who plays the nosferatu dracula himself is also the crooked man i don't know if you knew that is that true the crooked man from, from conjuring, uh, 2? conjuring 2 no kidding who we talked about a... on that episode and we're like yeah he just moves like he's stop motion and obviously oh, there's a lot this is more... the mama guy. You remember yeah. mama? Mm-hmm. Oh, no wonder. That is what I was thinking about when we were Wow, God bless this guy. He's great. And obviously this is a more mocappy situation, but still the physicality of that performance is coming through and it is heightening a lot of the the horror, I think. The very few Dracula words spoken as he's, like, creeping around on his incredibly extended arms and legs. It is, it's so memorable. It is so messed up. I love it. Those those gnashing Nosferatu teeth. It, it's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, it's pretty unsettling. I think the only two phrases that I was able to make out were him saying, Feed now, right before he turns... Olgarin, Olgarin into, into his, his little zombie, zombie yeah. guy. And then, of course, at the end, he says to Corey Hawkins, after Corey Hawkins says that he doesn't fear him, you will, which is oh. pretty hardcore. Dude, that's uh, every single thing. Yes, I love that. And that is another thing of like, I need Corey Hawkins to track this man down. This vampire, I need him to, to make good on that or or get stomped. I don't know. So good. I, I, you're not. I would also like to maybe see the script of this just to see if maybe Dracula said more in the original idea of this because I feel like 
I was expecting him to as he as he grew stronger. I was expecting a little more, not like monologuing or whatever, but like you know, a little bit more verbal communication based on what uh, Anna, the girl who's in the dirt box, is kind of talking about her history with like he is the lord and ruler of her village. I, I wanted to see a little bit more than that, more of that. And like we discussed earlier, it's an interesting balance between. He is clearly an intelligent creature, but he's also a little bit more monstrous than most versions mm. of Dracula are. Again, there's a lot, there's so much nosferatu his look and feel. And something that we haven't brought up yet that I loved, and I feel like it's the only thing that I really knew from the trailer because I intentionally was avoiding trailers from this, is the knocking that happens throughout the film oh, as they man. communicate with each other and the fact that about halfway through the slashering at the beginning when, before we really <laughs> see Dracula, when we realize that he has figured out the knocking and how to lure people with the knocking. Dude, that was the best. I, I was a huge fan of that. Just a true dread, that the just the foggy nighttime on the top deck shots where you just knocking from nowhere just starts tripping out characters. It's it's the best. And the whole movie, I was keeping my eye on the carpenter shed in the center of the deck, just being like, I I need the shot of him standing up on top in the dark but seeing that silhouette there and they made me wait until the very very end of the movie for <laughs> the it but it was worth it it was so good the, the pitch black shot of like there's something out there there's something on this ship any any more thoughts Seamus on the last voyage of Demeter honestly just in, insanely surprised at how enjoyable this movie was I We'll definitely rewatch it. It's got it's got me in the vampire mood, and and again, this is like some of the first real pure vampire stuff that I feel like I've had in a long time. A lot of modern vampire stuff I feel like veers into like the the sci-fi or the cryptid or the you know the whatever angle of it is. It's not like pure weird evil magic Dracula and this really felt like that with the perfect monster slasher twist so I I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed this. Yeah Overdahl's kind of folkloric approach to any kind of genre that he tackles I think is an inherently fresh one and I liked the way he was able to combine that with the the influences of Dracula's past and then mm. also the other slasher influences. Like, oh, also, this dog actor oh, is it's not the thing yeah. or anything, but pretty good dog acting in this movie. Like, uh, for real. I, I I thought that dog was acting the hell out of that role. Uh, also, when, when you were saying that to me, like, it's no the thing or whatever, but, like, I almost also feel like they... they killed that dog and made its face look a little the thing husky-ish and I don't know if that was on purpose but I really hope it was because that is that is good stuff I think it has to have been intentional right it just was... like every time we thought about alien it has yes. to have been intentional yes <laughs> yeah okay agreed good but let's go ahead and move on to more Dracula talk in our pop culture reference let's do it ah 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 Today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about the history of Dracula's screen adaptation. 
200 adaptations of Bram Stoker's Dracula in almost every form of media, from big-budget horror films and indie video games to graphic novels and children's television shows. The approaches to his portrayal have varied wildly over the years and often reflect the state of the film industry during their time period. The first screen appearance of Dracula was in a now-lost 1921 Austrian silent film called Dracula's Death, which did not actually follow the plot of Bram Stoker's novel. The film was actually co-written by Michael Curtis, who would later go on to be the director of Hollywood films such as Casablanca and White Christmas. A more direct translation and one of the most iconic incarnations of the story came with F.W. Murnau's 1922 classic Nosferatu. A low-budget production that did not obtain the film rights to the novel, names and plot details were changed. Dracula became Count Orlok, and the novel's English setting was changed to Germany to be more accessible to German audiences. Despite these changes, Bram Stoker's heirs sued the creators of Nosferatu, and the court ordered that all copies were to be destroyed. However, a few surviving copies became massively influential, and the film is considered a seminal work of early horror. In 1931, the first sound film adaptation of Dracula was released, starring Bela Lugosi, reprising his role as the Count from the Broadway show that the film was ultimately based on. The film, produced and distributed by Universal, was a massive success, spawned multiple sequel and spin-off films, and has become the pop culture baseline for what most people think of as Dracula. Bela Lugosi would also return as Dracula in the Universal-produced comedy Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein in 1942, along with other recognizable Universal monsters. In 1962, 50 years after Stoker's death, Dracula entered the public domain and led to a surge in new Dracula takes, both written and on screen. Some notable actors who starred in a myriad of adaptations during this period include Christopher Lee, Frank Langella, and John Carradine. The 1972 blaxploitation film Blackula, starring William Marshall, was a massive commercial success in America and helped pave the way for a mass of blaxploitation horror films, including a Blackula sequel the following year. In 1979, German filmmaker Werner Herzog remade Nosferatu, with the integration of more details from Bram Stoker's novel since it had previously entered the public domain. The film was shot in many of the same locations as the 1922 original, and Herzog actually shot two versions of the film, one in English and one in German, to placate 20th Century Fox. Francis Ford Coppola tried his hand at adapting the novel in 1992 with Bram Stoker's Dracula, which explicitly put the story in historical context by portraying Dracula as Vlad the Impaler. In 1995, Mel Brooks produced the Leslie Nielsen-led Dead and Loving It, a parody of Stoker's original story which relied heavily on humor, but has been praised for its surprising amount of source accuracy. The popularity of Dracula and other universal monsters waned in the 21st century, but there were still a few poorly received attempts to resurrect the story on the big screen. In 2004, Universal reimagined their classic monsters catalog as an action-adventure film following Dracula's titular nemesis Van Helsing as a monster hunter. Ten years later, Universal rebooted the property again with Dracula Untold. It was slated to be the first entry in the dead-on-arrival Dark Universe, a cinematic universe comprised of universal monsters. But after the film's disastrous critical and financial reception, its ties to the Dark Universe were cut, making 2017's The Mummy the first and only film in that continuity. Earlier this year, Universal once again shifted the main character of a Dracula adaptation in the comedy Renfield, which starred Nicholas Holt as the bug-eating servant of Nicholas Cage's Dracula. Ironically, ultimately the most financially successful recent adaptation of Dracula or classic monsters on film 
is the long-running Sony Animation children's film series Hotel Transylvania, where Adam Sandler plays Dracula. Today's main segment, The Last Voyage of Demeter, is based solely on the Captain's Log portion of the seventh chapter of the original Dracula novel. As evidenced by the preceding overview, this is a new way in which filmmakers search for an angle to keep the character of Dracula fresh for contemporary audiences. Andre Overdahl and the other creatives behind The Last Voyage of Demeter clearly took influence from the Dracula adaptations that came before them, such as Nosferatu and Universal's original Dracula, as well as infusing tropes of the slasher genre, which specifically sway from films such as The Thing and Alien. And it's incredible, with how long and how many adaptations we list in this pop culture reference, this is nowhere near comprehensive, and we are brushing oh, over a lot not. of different interpretations of the character. But it really is a testament to just how much, not only does Dracula capture creatives and the masses' imagination, but there are so many different, really interesting, creative ways that the story can be approached. And I definitely, with our, with my personal love of The Last Voyage of Demeter, I, I am very excited to dive way farther into this lore, this, this crazy, branching, different takes on this character. I'm, I'm very excited to get into the weirder ones, I feel like. Shout out to uh, The Count on Sesame Street and Count Chocula, which are two of the only <laughs> real versions of Dracula that I had experience with as a child growing up, besides, of course, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. But I love now know, knowing more about how bloodthirsty and brutal a lot of these adaptations can be, that it is just also kind of a kid's character, that, that funny old Dracula. The Count, not a vampire in the Sesame Street What do you canon. mean? He is vampire-like. He is not What? He's not an undead servant of evil in this kid's puppet show? According to the internal documents at Sesame Workshop, the <laughs> the guidelines is that the Count is vampire-like. I was just born with these teeth. Uh, uh, uh. Ridiculous. <laughs> Obviously, I think the, the idea is that, like, that's not what happened to Elmo's parents, you know? Like, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, there's no mysterious disappearances on Sesame Street with with neck bite corpses. Of course not. But what do you say we go on and save the rec center? Let's do a count. <laughs> you didn't want to match the point. Wow, whatever. Let's do it. Save the rec center! Now it's time to save the rec center, where we bring you our weekly rec recommendations. Seamus, what do you got for us? Well, this week, I'm, I'm diving into my own vampire history here to, to bring this one out. I know I've rec-centered the TV show, and I know I've rec-centered the original before, but I'm here to rec-center from Dusk Till Dawn 3, Garrett, the third Robert Rodriguez Dusk Till Dawn movie. There is no way that there are three from Dusk Till Dawn movies. And you know... For a fact, it's three for three. Danny Trejo is in these movies. I want I want you to know that. But this one, the third one, is a period piece cowboy western vampire movie, Garrett. Taking place in the middle of the Mexican desert in the original location of the Twister from the original movie. It's pretty... It's almost like clue levels of corny because it really is just so... 
Like it's it, it you know bank robbers need to hide out for the night. Literally the plot of the original From Dusk Till Dawn, but it's cowboys. They're in cowboy times and they're in cowboy stuff and they have cowboy guns and it's really way better than the second one, which is a shame because Robert Patrick is the star of that one and I really wanted it to be better. But it's it's really it's just a fun stupid third movie in a franchise that no one even knows existed and it really you know it got me in the mood last voyage of demeter got me in the mood for more like let's just plop vampires into a fun historical setting and and see what happens and i don't know if you remember much about the vampires in this franchise but they are weirdly like pretty you know right on you know no sunlight a wooden stake through the heart can transform to and from, like, human form. It's like, you know, they don't go too crazy. It's still blowing my mind that there are Dusk Till Dawn sequels, let alone... Oh, you didn't even know there was a second no, one? I had no Oh clue. my I knew god, the TV dude. Show. I knew I've seen the first one, obviously. They're obviously not as good as the original one, but it is still, like, if you want a, a more goofy version of a vampire period piece, then do Dusk Till Dawn 3. I might. Honestly, that is... that is A little me. trilogy? I'll watch that with you. I'll watch the really bad second one with you. But what do you got to save the Rex Center this week? Well, as previously alluded to on this show, I will be Rex Centering a film that I have liked for a very long time, which is Last Voyage of Demeter director Andre Overdahl's earlier film, 2010's Troll Hunter. This was recommended to me in high school when I was doing a article for the newspaper about movies that are so bad they're good, and I refused to put it in the article because I watched it, and it was just good. I really had a great time <laughs> with it. It is honestly the only found footage movie that I wholeheartedly defend, and I don't know why that is. If I'm being honest, because I don't think that the found footage element is particularly well used. I just think it's such a charming little film that it doesn't bother me, I suppose. I, I guess it's it's used less as a gimmick and more as just a form, if that makes sense. Because Troll Hunter was 90s, early 2000s? 2010. 2010 that is way later than i thought my god i mean there there is a certain point where found footage stuff gets way over bloated with like you know paranormal act the post paranormal activity it's just like every camera has night vision and is like weird effects and it, it feels way more fake but if you could really pull it off in a in a i mean even a semi convincing way for people like us who know how cameras work like handheld cameras i feel like that goes a long way honestly you know what it really probably is and this is uh, kind of the first time I've really articulated this. It uses the found footage really well to make the trolls feel real and to mm. feel like we're in like a, not only to understand the scale of them and the, and the proportion, but to put them in a more realistic feeling space. It also probably covers some low budget CGI. Oh um, yeah. But it's charming. It's not particularly scary but it's a good time. It's a quick time from what I remember. I think it's 95 minutes if it's anything, huh. I would guess. It used to be, it was a Netflix staple back <laughs> in the day, but I think you can only find it on like Hoopla now. But if you are interested in seeking it out, if you enjoyed Last Voyage of Demeter, I encourage you to do that if you have Hoopla through your local library. Otherwise, 
it makes the streaming rounds. I've seen it on Peacock before. It'll it'll come back to something that you have. Well, I I am very interested in this because you know me. I I am uh, actually a and very much an enjoyer of found footage. Um, as and I've heard about this movie for years. Like you're saying, it's the one of the one movie Netflix had when it when it hit streaming. So I'm definitely familiar with it, but. I'm I'm so impressed by Last Voyage that I think I will definitely pull the trigger on that the next time I see it make the rounds on whatever services I'm looking at. I'm glad. But I think that that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach the show, you can find us at PCR underscore podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. You can email the show at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube, engage with us in any way that you can. Next week, we will be going back to stark reality as we (laughs) endeavor to cover the premiere of the anticipated question mark (laughs) Disney Plus. Someone's anticipating it. Yeah. Original series Ahsoka, you know, I'm excited for Mary Elizabeth Winstead Hera. Um, I'm excited for live action Chopper. Chopper. I do not have particularly high hopes, but I hope to be (laughs) wrong next week. You know what? Me too. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I feel like I've had my cool down since Mando and stuff. So I'm I'm going in with high hopes, and maybe that's my mistake. But we will find out about that next week. Well, everybody, Spectre Spectre Two out. Adios, amigos. Ah ah ah.